us to Job 31, please. Job 31, as we continue our study in the book of Job. And the title tonight for chapter 31 is Job Hopes for Future Vindication. Job Hopes for Future Vindication. Now, in this chapter, Job challenged God to clear his name in the future. Chapter 31 finishes Job's lengthy, wordy defense as he was defending himself from the accusations that his friends were bringing upon him. And it's been quite a verbal slugfest, as we've seen since we started. Job's three friends kind of lined up against him and tag-teamed Job, trying their best to beat him down, trying their best to get Job to admit that he's committed some great sin. And the reasoning, as we've seen, is that God wouldn't have allowed Job to suffer like he is so terribly and so much if, if Job hadn't committed some terrible sin. And after going the distance with Job, they finally throw in the towel. Which is obvious because the last man that, that was debating Job, which was Zophar, he didn't, uh, he didn't answer Job back. Zophar didn't step up. He didn't, you know, answer the bell. <laughs> he threw in the towel. He didn't answer the rebuttal. So Job now continues to speak on. Job's friends had really made Job angry with all the stuff they had to say. And Job comes out of his corner still swinging. And in defending himself, he has to accuse God. That's what all of this really boils down to now. Job here is suggesting that God is wrong in punishing him. And probably the most foolish thing that any person can do is to justify themselves since God must charge us with sin. And you see, the minute you start to justify yourself, defend yourself, God immediately will have to point the finger and say, at you and say what you are. Real wisdom and the correct position to take is to condemn ourselves totally. And then to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Yes, Lord, I am a sinner. Yes, I am not perfect. Yes, I have messed up. But Lord, I come to you upon, based upon your mercy. And when we do that, then God becomes our justifier. He becomes our advocate. There's nothing but wrath for the self-righteous. There's nothing but grace for those who judge themselves. This is so important for us to remember in our own lives. Humility, it's, it's a quality that we respect. It's a quality that we look for in other people. It's a, it's a, it's a character of human nature to be proud. Pride is the norm for the human race. The book of Job is teaching us that when we come before God... He wants us to be real before him. We can't defend ourselves. We can't put up a defense for, for, for ourselves. He knows our works. He sees right into the heart of man. And there's no possible advantage to try to build ourselves up as if we were something special. You know, some great person or that we've done some great thing. Nothing is more sure than God will break down <clears throat> every kind of arrogance. And the day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord. You know, that will be against everything high and lifted up. 
So it's wise for us to take the low road, to take the low and broken place today. Because you see, it's the low place that gives us our best view of God and his salvation. As I've said before, there's no higher place to be than at the feet of Jesus. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how many references there are to this subject of being contrite? And how God approves of us being contrite? The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to those, listen, to ha- who have a broken heart, and sa- he saves such as have a contrite spirit. The word contrite means crushed. It mean, literally, it means crushed, like powder. When we come to him crushed in our spirit, crushed like powder, pulverized, those are the ones that, that, that God listens to and saves. Real, real repentance involves taking that position. And we need to recognize, that, just like David, that, recognize that just like David did. Listen to David in that great psalm of repentance when he made his confession. Psalm 51, 17. He said, the sacrifices of God are, notice, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, crushed to to dust. The sacrifice he had to bring was a broken and contrite, that is, crushed heart. A humble spirit, totally repentant for sin. That's what God wanted from David. That's what God wants from us. And that's the only thing God will receive. When you come to God to do business with him, you don't come on an equal plane. You don't come to God to trade with him on equal terms. Lord, uh, I'll do this. You do that. You don't give him a little bit of your goodness and expect some goodness back. We need to recognize that when we approach God through repentance, that this is taught all through the Bible. That's the only way you can approach God, through repentance. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Listen to what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Those are the ones I dwell with, he says. So this matter of being humble and contrite is a problem for all believers today, especially for those who are in the Lord's service. I think we can say that arrogance and self-conceit is, are, are, are more disgusting when they're seen in the servants of the Lord. Philippians 2.7, Paul said, uh, said this, of the one who made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Unlike Jesus is pride in the lives of those who name his name and say they're believers. That's so unlike Christ. For a servant to be arrogant and self-conceited. You know, those who say they're believers. To reveal, to see in themselves a hateful and unsubmissive, self-displaying Christian witness in Christian service, it's terrible. And in this final section, Job is not very attractive. He's not very nice here. Job has been doing a good job of, of commending himself and patting himself on the back. He said, what, what, he said, 
he has, he said he's, he's, he's an outstanding man, an influential man, a good man. That, and, and, and he was. And then he tries to get some sympathy for the present condition that he's in. As he finishes his speech here in 31, it focuses on his good character. This emphasizes that he's not guilty of the charges that he's accused of. Job insists that he's lived a holy life. And he mentions several different areas of the evil that he's not guilty of, that even his friends accused him of some of these things. Job starts where evil begins, in the mind. It begins in the mind. And when it enters the mind, and and, and we don't get rid of it right away, we begin to entertain those evil thoughts. And as we entertain them, we'll begin to act upon them. Job is talking about the corruptions to begin with of dirty thoughts, immoral thoughts about women. Let's look at chapter 31 now with verse 1. And Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Now, this covenant speaks about a sincere dedication to purity. And you have to be serious about purity or, you're, or you'll never succeed in being pure and staying pure. Job says that he was not going to look at anything that would cause him to have dirty thoughts. You know, like today, you know, magazines or, or you know, TV shows or TV movies, videos, whatever. You know, and we have to be careful what we watch on TV if we want to have a pure mind. Or, or the things that we look at, the things that we present to our eyes. Verses 2 and 3. He goes on to say, For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Job says, what has... What has God above chosen for us? What's our inheritance from the Almighty God? Isn't it calamity for the wicked and misfortune for those who do evil? Dirty thoughts will trouble you. And they will rob you of divine blessings and they will bring God's judgment instead. Keep your mind clean if you don't want to be under God's judgment. Verse 4. Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Notice that God sees everything. The psalmist speaks even clear here about this awareness. God, you know my thoughts even from far away. You know, in Psalm 139, the psalmist tells us that. And he knows our our thoughts from afar off. You know what I'm thinking. God knows every thought that we think. You'll never keep your dirty thoughts from God. And knowing that, just knowing that should keep our minds, it should purify our thoughts. It should, you know, cleanse our thinking. Five and six. He says, if I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Job is saying he's an honest man. And to prove that he's honest, he says, God, I'm willing to be weighed on your scales because your scales are just. 
they're equally balanced. You don't put false weights on one side so the, you know, the, the weight comes out different or unequal. You know, your scales of justice are honest scales and they will prove my innocence. Verses 7 and 8. He says, if my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. He says, Lord, if I've strayed from your path or if my heart has lusted for what I see or if I'm guilty of any other sin that let somebody else eat my crops that I have planted and let everything that I planted be rooted up. Job argues that he hasn't walked away from God's commands. That he hasn't departed from God's, from obeying God. And to prove it, he says, God, I am willing to suffer the harsh consequences that you bring upon me if I'm guilty. Let somebody else have the crops I've planted and, and, and uproot all of everything else that I have. You might seem to get away with disobeying God for, for a while, but sooner or later, God's judgment will come. Verses 9 through 12. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. He says, Lord, if my heart has been seduced by a woman, if I've lusted after my neighbor's wife, he says, now let my wife belong to another man. Let another man sleep with her. For lust is a shameful sin. It's a crime that should be punished. He says, it's a fire that burns all the way to hell. It would wipe out everything that I own. What Job is talking about here is adultery. Job says that he's not guilty of that. And what Job says here about adultery is very instructive, and it's an excellent warning against it. It's a warning that's very needed in our morally wrong age, where adultery is a common thing and an accepted thing. The prompting of adultery, what brings it on is twofold. It's either, it's either brought on by enticement, that is either by the woman or by the man, or by an ambush of the man, when it says there in verse 9 that he laid in wait, the word laid in wait, you know, it, it lurked, I should say lurked, it means to lay in wait. Adultery happens either because the woman enticed the man or the man has enticed the woman. Either way. Adultery breaks up marriages. It destroys families. It devastates the kids. And you know what the cause of adultery is? Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. It basically means we can't get along. It basically means you can't forgive and you can't let it go. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. That's a pretty sad thing. Because I'm not willing to forgive. I'm not willing to say I'm sorry. Not willing to say you're forgiven. 
Verse 10 here is the language of an offended wife becoming the wife of another man and doing the household chores and having sex with him. In clear and simple language, the Bible says adultery is wicked. Verse 11. We see in Joseph, with Joseph when he told Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39, 9, he said it is great wickedness. It is a sin against God. It's great wickedness. But our society today has done a great job to whitewash it by giving it, if you want to call it that, nice names, palatable names and toleration. Oh, well, you know, it's an affair. They're in love. They're miserable. Their marriage right now, you know, it's, they're miserable. They found somebody that cares for them, that wants to take care of them. He's fallen in love with somebody else. You know, they never were in love with that other person. They got married when they were young. Whatever the thing might be. They weren't happy anymore. And one of the things I I hear a lot is, you know, well, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. God wants you to be at peace, which is true. But no matter how how you spin it, it is still a wicked sin. And we even catch ourselves sometimes in movies where the husband is is bad or the wife is bad and they're unhappy and they're just, you know, they go out and they meet somebody by accident or somebody at work. And this guy or this girl becomes something or someone that their husband or wife at home is not. Oh, they're good listeners or they're care. And, and the next thing you say, oh, and you're sitting rooting for that. Oh, that, oh I hope that, that they fall in love and they get together. And we're basically hoping for adultery. <laughs> we're hoping that they have an affair and get together. And we catch ourselves in that sometimes. I think there was a movie a long time ago, something about with Clint Eastwood in Madison County, like something like that. And, and, oh, and Clint Eastwood and her, they were just, you know, in that wound. That, and everybody was, oh, I hope they get together. Everybody was, you know, and again, it's, it's, we get caught up in that. Our society has done a good job of, of you know, of labeling it something else. Committing adultery is not an honorable thing. No matter who you are or what kind of spin you put on it. This is one reason why people don't want the Bible in the court. And for many other reasons, they don't want the Bible in the courtroom. Because, you see, it calls for punishment on one of society's favorite sins. Adultery is stealing. It is heartless because it doesn't care about the other person that you're stealing their partner from. It doesn't care about the children. It doesn't care about the family. It doesn't care if, that, if, if there's now no income and, it, and if it's the husband you know, and the wife now. Can't, can't afford to take care of the children. It's heartless and it's inexcusable. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians first, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 6. He said, for this is the will of God. All right? This is the will of God. And then he goes beyond to, to tell you what the will of God is. He says, your sanctification, your holiness, you're, set up, you're, you're, you're being set apart. That you should abstain from sexual immorality that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. You are defrauding your brother or whoever it is in this matter. 
When adultery enters a marriage, everybody loses. And I remember one time a lady and her husband divorced and she came in. And she talked with me. She said, she's Pastor, I, I need to set up an appointment with, with you and my kids. What's the matter? She said, they're doing very they're doing really poor in school and you know they're angry and they're just and, and you need to tell them to, you know, you need to tell them to to get right. And she said, and she goes, well, you know, me and my husband divorced. And, I, and she says, they're, they're pretty upset. I said, they have a right to be upset. You, you want me or, or God to fix something that you broke. That's why some things that God says, don't, you can't break those things. Because you can't, they're irrever- they do irreversible damage. Marriage wasn't meant to be broken, except by death and and fornication. He went on to say, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice he's comparing that, the, the brothers and sisters who would do that to the Gentiles who don't know God. We're acting like the, like the, the, the unworld, we're acting like the worldly. And, and, and he, says, he says, and you take advantage of, and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness he said, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And then verse 12, Job says, it's a, he's a fire that, it's a fire that consumes. Adultery is a fire that consumes. Verse 12 here speaks of the penalties for adultery. The fire is often the fires of hell. The word consumes tells us that in the end, adultery will ruin and destroy you. It's a behavior where nobody wins. Uncontrolled lust will destroy. That momentary pleasure that it may give is only the quiet before the storm. Another sin Job said he didn't commit was mistreating his servants and his slaves and demeaning them. Which was a common thing in his day. Look at verse 13. He says, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me. The demeaning that Job brings up here is the disregard for their justified complaint. That is, if their master was treating the, the, the servant badly and, and they had a legitimate complaint, you know, that, that they wouldn't get listened to. Servants often had complaints about the way they were being treated, but weren't listened to. Nothing was done. Cruel masters didn't pay attention to the complaints. They were truly being demeaning to the servants. Verse 14. What then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Job reminds us that we have to give account to God for what we do. Paul gave the reminder when he said in Romans 14, 12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. If you put down your servants or whatever evil you do, you'll have to give an answer to God for your behavior. Verse 15. 
Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? He was saying, you know, to, if you, you know, at that, again, speaking about this time, he says to look down on your servant or slave in a demeaning way was a form of discrimination. Because he says, God, to God, all men are the same. Also, Job, Job wasn't guilty of ignoring the needs of the, of the less fortunate. Of which Eliphaz accused Job of. He accused Job of depriving the less fortunate back in chapter 22, verse 6, and nine, 6 through 9. And Job already denied that accusation in chapter 29. But now he's dealing with this issue again. And he argues against the charge again. Look at verses 16 through 23. And then we'll and also then go to verses 29 through 32 after that. But verse 16 through, 20, through 23, it says, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fall, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. He says, if I have seen anyone perish for the lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder, let my arm be torn from my socket for destruction from God is a terror to me and because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. Now, Job here wasn't boasting. I mean, he's talking about all the things. He says, if I've done all of these things, then God ripped my arm from my socket. He wasn't boasting. He was defending himself in front of men, and he was looking for God to clear his name. He was saying, if I've, if I've lifted my hand in court against any man, Job hoped that God will rip that arm right out of his socket. He says, I was concerned for the need of widows. I was concerned for orphans and the poor. I gave them food. I gave them clothing. I came to their defense in court. He said, I even treated, the, treated, the, treated them like members of my own family. And I took care of them until they could take care of themselves. God had given Job his wealth. And God could take it away from him if he didn't share it with others. That's what he was saying in verse 23. But Job was a good neighbor. He was a good neighbor to his enemies also. And to strangers passing through town. That's what he says here in these verses. And because Job was a wealthy and powerful man, no doubt there were a lot of people who envied him as well as hated him. And yet Job was kind to them. He didn't rejoice over their misfortunes. Or ask God to curse them. Job was also generous, generous to strangers, giving them food to eat and a place to spend the night. None of Job's servants could ever accuse Job of being selfish. His home was open to everyone and he was generous with his gifts. Verses 29 through 32. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself up when evil uh, found me, Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been able, uh, who has not been, a, uh, been satisfied with his meat, but no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. Notice. So he, he was saying all of these things that, 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 that he had done. 
And that, you know, he, he, he met the needs of everybody. And, and so he says, I'm not guilty of these things. Now back to verse 24 and 25. And he says, if I have made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because of my wealth was great, and because my hand had gained much. Here Job says he's innocent when it comes to covetousness. Now he didn't say being wealthy was wrong. But it was greedy to desire to be wealthy. That's what was wrong. Again, it's not wrong to possess gold. But it's wrong when the gold possesses you. When gold is your affections, it's your love, it's what you're looking for. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 9, you are to honor the Lord with your possessions. And the question is, how can I use what the Lord has blessed me with to glorify him? The judgment for covetousness is combined with the judgment for idolatry, verse 28. It's called iniquity. And it would be punished by God. Notice that that covetousness and idolatry are combined in the judgment statement. It's no surprise because Scripture says they're both from the same family. Notice, well, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul said, covetousness, which is adultery. I'm sorry, idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Then the next thing Job mentions is the sin of idolatry, which is another sin that he's not guilty of committing. In verse 28, he, he says he hasn't denied the truth, uh, 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 true God in his faith. Look at verse 26. If I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you are my confidence. Idolatry comes in many shapes and sizes. A common form of idolatry was to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. You know, those who guide their life by astrology every day, they're guilty of the same sin. Idolatry, because you see, they've made the stars their God. Verse 27. So that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand. This is talking about The attraction of of idolatry. You see, sin has to have some kind of attraction to get people to do it. And that's why Satan always makes it look so attractive. Like this is going to be so wonderful. This is a great thing to have. This is a great thing to do. And it's going to make you so happy. It's going to make you feel so good. And two big reasons why idolatry attracts is that it limits God and it promotes fleshly desires it limits god in that it allows men to determine the limits of their god you know when we want something so bad and and that that temptation that idolatry looks so so good we begin to limit god in who he is and, and well you know god really you know maybe he doesn't really mean all of that maybe you know and we begin to limit god in idolatry, man controls the doctrine and duty. But you see, in the true worship of God, he controls the doctrine and the duty. Men don't like to be told what to believe. They don't like to be told what to do. They want to make their own rules, so idolatry is appealing to them. 
It appeals to the flesh because you know what? It, it, it encourages, it promotes fleshly desires. Kissing idols, as he mentioned in verse 27. Kissing idols was a common way to show devotion to an idol. And growing up as a young kid in the church I was brought up in, I saw people kiss idols. You know, rub them and just touch them. And like, you're just trying to get something from them. Sometimes one kissed the hand that touched the idol. That's what this is saying here. It's a kind of behavior that shows love or affection or devotion to the idol. Verse 28. And Paul, really, Paul basically said they were nothing but demons. The invention of man's imagination. Right, verse 28. If I have observed the sun when it shines. I'm sorry, that's 26, I'm sorry. This also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. So, like adultery, the word clearly says idolatry is sin. For one reason, it denies the true God, the honor that God is due. And because it's sin, it will be punished by God. And and we need to understand that doctrine does matter. God's word does matter. It determines divine judgment on man. Verse 33. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, sin can't be hidden. It can't be disguised. And Job talks about that here. He's saying that he's not hiding or trying to cover up any sin in his life. Now, we know in Genesis that after Adam uh, sinned, he hid. He hid after sinning in the garden. He tried to cover his sin. And as we can see, that trying to cover our sin, it started a long time ago. It's man's habit to try to hide the evil that they do. Verse 34. Because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence. There's two things that people are afraid of that cause them to try and hide their sins. People try to hide their sins so, so, so that the great multitude, he says here, notice, the great multitude, which means others, don't find out. They try to cover their sins so that others don't find out and so that others don't contempt, have contempt for them or condemn them. So sinners are afraid of two things, publicity, that is people finding out, and punishment. And they think that they can get rid of these problems by covering up their sin. I don't want to be found out. And I don't want to, you know, get in trouble for it. So I'll try to cover it up. But it never works. It will never work out. Because you can be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Now verses, because we've kind of taken these out of order, as you can see the verses. Verses 38 through 40 should really come after 34 because, you see, they continued the list of sins that Job was naming. Sins that he's not guilty of committing. So this area deals with not honoring contracts, dealing with getting land or renting land or any other deal having to to do with the land. This has to do with failing to do something required by duty or law. 
In principle, it has to do with keeping your word. This is another common sin that's, that's a still a big problem today. A lot of people, people don't keep their promises. They don't keep their obligations when it comes to contracts. They only want to get the thing that they're after. They only want to gain, but they don't intend on carrying out their responsibility to others. They're not honest when they sign contracts or, or agreements. Look at verse 38. Notice, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, Job kind of Job personifies the land and the furrows. He's actually referring to people who are involved with the land, whether they're renters, sellers, or servants. He's saying if the contract is broken or not followed, the wrongdoer will ignore the complaints. Just like he ignores the complaints of his servants back in verse 13. Verse 39. He says, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives. He says, the slacker often gets his profits. He often gets the fruits without paying the due price. And without caring about the rights of the other people involved. It doesn't bother him. If the other party starves to death or their business dies because he hasn't fulfilled his end of the, of the contract. He just cares about what he can get and for his own self. The wrongdoer just uses people, Job says. The contract is used just they get what they want. Verse 40. Then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Judgment here. Judgment eventually always comes to the person who gets their gain, you know, unlawfully, in 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 an unlawful way. Joseph says, weeds instead of wheat and barley. Let them receive weeds instead of wheat and barley, which portrays loss for the cheater. And in this section, Job shows that he knows that he has a solid case against the accusations that are made against him. That that, that they're not causing him all of his troubles. So he's more than willing to be examined in front of a court. So he's asking to make his plea before the court. Look at verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. Job has said before, He wanted to have a court of justice hear his case because he's confident with the Almighty, you know, sitting at the bench. He's confident that that God's judging the case, that he'll be cleared of all the charges made against him by his three friends. Now, Job doesn't say that he's never sinned, but he does say, I haven't committed some great sin that has caused all of my troubles. But his three friends believe his great troubles indicate that he's been a great sinner. Job believes a court of justice would clear him. So he's pleading for a court of justice to just hear his his case, his defense. And Job here in verse 35 is is focusing on, on the prosecution here. Job wants a written accusation. He wants the accusations put down in writing. Because this way, the accusations, you know, uh, can be decided on with certainty and answered more correctly. Because if the accusations aren't written down, then the prosecution can always change the accusation and, and then deal dishonestly with the court. Verse 36. 
He says, surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. Now, again, figuratively speaking here, figurative language here, it shows that Job would honor the accusations by submitting them to the judge to be examined. Now, putting something on the shoulder on one's crown, it's a place of honor. So Job feels that the accusations will actually honor him because they'll be proven false and clear his blemished righteousness. Verse 37. He said, I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Job says his response to the accusations would be in detail. That's what he means here by the number of my steps. And it would be with confidence. That's what it means like a prince. I would approach him. That is God the judge. You know, I I, I will give my, my... my, my case in, in detail. And, I, I, and with confidence, I will go before God. Like a prince, I will approach him. Going before the judge like a prince shows a lot of boldness on Job's part. Because it can only be done by somebody who's innocent. By somebody who expects to be cleared. By the judge. In closing... This tells Job's three friends that Job thinks that their accusations are all groundless. There's no substance to them. There's no justification for them. And Job feels very sure that he's going to be cleared. And he's right. So that's why he can go boldly to God, the judge, and expect to be received kindly and to be cleared of all of his charges. You see, when you have a clean record, that is a clean slate, you're not afraid of judgment. You're not afraid to be examined. Job had challenged God because he was sure that God would clear him. Job's three friends were sure that God would condemn him. Of which we know they were wrong. Father, we come before you again, thanking you for this passage, Lord. Father, as we learn, God, you are a fair and honest judge, Lord. You are a righteous judge, the scriptures say. And Father, we know that when we come before you and we're innocent of all charges that Satan tries to put upon us, Lord. Because Jesus has bore our sins and he's given us a clear slate that with confidence we know that we can stand before you on that day. And you will declare us innocent of all the charges that our adversary has accused us of. And because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, who defends us, he will clear our name 
And he will allow us to join him in the kingdom. And so, Father, we thank you. And, Lord, may we learn to depend and trust upon you, God. We know the enemy is a liar. Father, help us not to believe the enemy, to fall for the lies of the enemy. But to stand upon the truth. The truth of Christ, the truth of his word. And on that day we stand before you, we will be vindicated. And we thank you for that, Lord. Father, go with your people now, Father. Protect them, watch over them. Keep them safe, keep them healthy, Lord, and their families. And Father, we just look to you and Father, just protect us and bring us back together, Lord, this weekend, this Sunday, Lord. So we thank you, Father. We love you. We give you praise and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Sunday morning, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2. And it's about what 